0: I do think that a lot of people don't ask questions about China or, or like to see it as this monolith, because they simply just don't know what questions to ask. and i'm not, I'm not blaming them for their ignorance. I just think it's it's a country that presents itself as a monolith.
1: Welcome to Underreported. I'm your host, Nicholas Lemon. Today, part two of our three-part series on the book called The Subplot, what China is reading and why it matters. China is often seen as a monolith, especially by Westerners who think they know how Chinese citizens live and even what their ideals are. But we want to dispel the master narrative. In her book author Megan Walsh offers up a wide nuanced variety of Chinese writing previously confined to Chinese readers. The works of fiction she has managed to uncover reach into the nooks and crannies of Chinese culture. They help us to better understand the country and its people. Megan Walsh joins us today from London. Welcome to Underreported.
2: Hi, thanks so much for asking me.
1: As does Rosie Bloor, editor of 1843 magazine and contributor to The Economist magazine in London.
0: Thanks, happy to be here.
1: I want to start out by uh, setting up a straw man. Those of us who don't live in China and haven't been there, and don't speak the language, tend to, you know, swallow unquestioningly an idea that we get from a lot of Western media that uh, this is a very repressive authoritarian country that is getting more so. And so there really, we, w- there's no access to any kind of sense of what Chinese people are thinking and doing, except through official channels and a few political dissonance. So I'm saying that so you can tell me why I'm wrong. So please tell me why I'm wrong.
2: Well, I think the, the main reason is, as you rightly pointed out, that we have a media that tends to focus on binaries with China. It's a sort of friend or foe. It's an oppressive state or an economic miracle. And we tend to also engage with China in the West as something that we are not. We we define ourselves by our differences to it, especially in relation to things like censorship and the use of propaganda. I think when I first went to China, I, I went with that view myself and I found myself interviewing various writers in a panel and I asked them straight up about whether they're censored and how they feel about self-censoring. and And I instantly felt quite ashamed of the question because I realised that it's something that they live with, they've lived with for a long time, but it also isn't the only prism through which they uh, view the world, through which they work. And if that was something that they wanted to talk about, they would bring it up um, themselves. But I realised from that point, really, that it was really important to engage with what they were saying rather than what they weren't saying, or what I assumed they were saying to please the government or to submit to certain edicts.
1: Rosie, could you talk a little bit about your own experience with China and how you react to the straw man I was setting up?
0: Sure. I mean, my, my first experience of China was in 1994, and I was an impressionable and ignorant 18-year-old. I remember going, you know, I was backpacking and I went to Tiananmen Square. The 1989 crackdown in Tiananmen Square was like, basically was was the first global news story, I think, that I really sort of absorbed. I was 14 when it happened. Tom Brokaw.
1: Good evening. We all knew it couldn't go on forever, but no one thought it would come to this. A brutal massacre of Chinese students and other protesters by the Chinese army. We've asked NBC's George Lewis to take us through this long bloody battle.
0: In the early morning hours of Sunday, armoured personnel carriers began to advance on the square. There was a volley of tear gas. Then, without warning, the army opened up with bullets firing indiscriminately at the crowd. One doctor estimated the number of dead at 500 The doctor said, my government has gone mad. And then here I was, an 18-year-old in Tiananmen Square, and there were all these people who were, you know, this was the pre-iPhone, pre-camera age, really. People were kind of buying Polaroids of themselves with their picture in Tiananmen Square. And then I remember going to see Mao in his mausoleum. And, you know, here we are seeing this kind of icon of communism. And then you come out the other end and there's a gift shop and people are buying massage balls and playing cards and lots of different things. And it was, it was more that I was sort of confronted with my own stupidity. I realised I had no idea what questions to ask about China, that I had just sort of assumed it was this kind of place, this thing that we'd been told by the government, and that actually here was a billion-plus people living interesting, excited, sort of optimistic lives or, or, you know, looking to the future and wondering about change, and that it was just much, much more complex and interesting and exciting and different than I'd thought, and I, I do think that a lot of people don't ask questions about China or, or like to see it as this monolith because they simply just don't know what questions to ask and I'm I'm not blaming them for their ignorance. I just think it's it's a country that presents itself as a monolith and then we in general outside China know so little about it. we also don't quite know how to unpick that monolith.
1: Take us, Rosie with a little forward with your story. You've gone from uh, an innocent and misinformed 18-year-old to being the extremely well-informed 22-year-old that you are now. So how
0: did you get there? I wish I was just 22. I would not say that I'm well-informed. One of the things that's strange about China is that the more you know it, the the more you realize you don't know it at all. But anyway, I attribute China as, as to being one of the reasons I became a journalist. I just realized it was incredibly interesting to try and work out how people live, why people lived as they did, you know, whether that was China or elsewhere, it was just really incredibly exciting to kind of look around and ask questions and be presented with things that you didn't understand and um so i was very very lucky and i went back there as china correspondent for the economist in 2014 And actually, some of those kind of early impressions are are important and continue to be the case because actually these days, it's really, really hard to talk to anyone, even as a journalist for an official news publication, etc. It's very hard to talk to anyone in government. It's very hard to talk to any officials. I mean, you do do it, but not a lot. And so actually, as a journalist, you also spend a lot of time talking to those people and realizing that there's all these different viewpoints and all these different sort of sides to China, And so my experience as a journalist also kind of reflects, I think, what what Megan is writing about in her book, which is there are all these different voices, all these different viewpoints, and it's a much more diverse place than than we initially thought.
1: Well, I'm a journalist. Rosie's a journalist. Megan's a journalist critic. I know a fair number of fiction writers. And so in a sense, I hope they're not listening, because they always say, you cannot use fiction as evidence of what's going on in society it's just a pure work of the imagination and work of art okay so i'm going to sort of break that rule and say to the extent that you can read writing about what's going on in china or writing about china i think it's unfair to say as journalism but as providing evidence about what Chinese life is like, not what the Chinese government is doing or what the Chinese government says is going on, but what how ordinary people actually live. What do you learn, Megan?
2: The importance of fiction in China is that it is a medium that is chosen very specifically and intentionally by writers because speaking plainly, speaking in prose and nonfiction can get you into quite a lot of trouble if you are tackling taboo subjects, historical ideas that have been rewritten or treated as mutable anyway by the government. But I also think fiction, in terms of understanding the experience of everyday life in China, is the perfect medium everywhere. It's about uh, understanding the process of living. It's about trying to figure out what it means to be alive. And that's why most Chinese writers have chosen that medium to do that. And if you engage with the kind of the very um, peculiar and diverse and, and sort of fascinating range of fiction that's being produced at the moment, you get a sense that there is no commonality of experience. There's no ethnic or national narrative. There are just individual voices who are trying to figure out how they feel about their past and what is going on at the moment.
1: If we're trying to Use this writing to get a picture of China that isn't available in standard news. What would we see? Um, you know, there, there are kind of uh, socio-sociological and economic fault lines that we're familiar with: differences by generation, differences by geographical location, differences by class and education level. All those things. What are those fault lines in China that you know, those of us who just read straight news don't see.
2: One of the main things is a sort of generational divide between people who experienced life under Mao and those who didn't. China's next generation, are they living up to their potential? Our panelists weigh in on the pros and cons of China's emerging youth culture. And that tends to also be seen through the the prism of rural and the, the rural and urban divide, that uh, people who grew up under Mao also had... An experience of growing up in the countryside, living in the countryside, which connected them in some ways to the sort of agrarian structure of society before Mao. And as a result, I think the experience of young people growing up in an urbanized China has been quite a difficult one, primarily because it's not seen as difficult. And they have been really trying to figure out how to write, how to think about their lives, how to feel positive about them when they feel like. They've, they've had it easy compared to their parents and, and they're often told as much. The next generation, China's youngsters, have reacted to our rapidly changing world. The recent catchphrase, becoming Buddha, roasts China's millennials for their lack of work ethic and ambition. There's no denying that they are enjoying a comfort and freedom unheard of to their parents. And I think that's a a particularly tricky fault line for a lot of people who were born after the 1970s. It's a fault line that they are thinking about a lot and trying to navigate, especially in their writing. I think there's, I mean, Rosie, you must know that. that What other fault lines do you think there are?
0: I think that's right. I mean, there is this sort of saying in China that, you know, it's a generation every seven years or something because change is, is so fast. And certainly when you're there, you feel like you're watching change happen in front of you, even in kind of tiny things. It's it's just fascinating to see. But one of the particular fault lines is with, um, as Megan says, with those who've experienced kind of very rapid economic growth and so in their lifetime seen this improvement in living standards. And then those who are sort of born, say, post-1990s, when actually things were not bad already, and are now being, you know, these. this is the, the generation that's kind of reaping the benefits of economic reform, but they're not that grateful for it because they didn't know anything different. And I think those are... You know, some of the writers that, that Megan writes about in her book are really quite young and some would see as kind of quite frivolous and sort of unimportant. But those voices are so interesting because those are the ones who are going to be, you know, the, the kind of dominant in society soon. And those are the people who are no longer so grateful to the Communist Party. I mean, if we're looking to see kind of fiction as a way to look at what happens in society. Those are the people whose hopes and dreams are based on kind of their own personal lives as opposed to, oh, will China China be stronger? Will China be this? And I think that we can see a lot in terms of people's optimism and their kind of their hopes for themselves and the smaller sort of group around them in, in the fiction and in talking to people.
1: This is a terribly unfair question because we're talking about a large, large, large number of people. But if either or both of you could talk a little bit about the younger generation in China that you've been talking about, what are they worried about? What are they happy about? What kind of lifestyle choices are they making? What's, you know, younger generation culture like in China, or if there are several subcultures, what are those?
2: So I think there's a huge range now. I think in the early days of reform and opening up, there was a sense that there was no youth culture to speak of and young people were trying to make make sense of how they felt about the future without much of a roadmap to do it. I think now we're sort of 30 years on from a very kind of restless um, three decades of, um, as, as Rosie says, sort of rapid economic change. There's the people who've done very well out of it and there's the people who feel like they... Never made it. They they fell behind. They didn't make the most of that opportunity, and I think that that has created all sorts of cultural factions, which are quite um, countercultural and (laughs) arguably quite exciting. So grumpy uh, comics and people who are just devoted to escaping real life and writing about fantasies of being omnipotent superheroes and incredibly attractive uh, love interests. But it's also bled into. Quite sort of tangible movements. Um, There's one at the moment which most people probably heard of, called the lying down or tamping yi. where people really want to opt out of the rat race they are. They are tired of the pressure put upon them to be a somebody, to be really successful, and that has come from their parents as well as propaganda surrounding national rejuvenation. Young people are talking about why work so hard? Why do we have to fight so hard uh, within our system? Yes, this is a, this is the problem. This is the challenge. That is how to provide, provide proper opportunities and fair opportunities to the young population. This is a huge challenge. Okay, this is this is the biggest challenge, bigger than the challenge of population and demographics. And I think that's quite a, a worry for the government. And it's, uh, I think a. a- offering a sense of release for for them.
0: I mean, one of the things that's sort of interesting and both kind of sobering and exciting when you you ask people what they want in life is that very often they'll tell you the same kind of thing that someone would tell you out on the street in London. Um, I remember meeting a Tibetan guy. He was in, um, lived on the Tibetan plateau, he'd never been outside his province. And I was like, so where would you, you know, if you could go anywhere, where would you go? And he's like, I want to go to the Maldives. You know, that was not the answer I expected. And, you know, if we might, if we go there um, and think, oh, people are going to tell us that they want the vote, or they want democracy, you know, they just don't. And they don't not say that because, because of censorship, they just, it's, that's not forefront of people's minds. So, Often what you find is that people are talking about exactly, you know, very similar hopes and dreams as you would get anywhere else. And some of the kind of big picture anxieties of the Chinese state are also not that different from anywhere else. This this idea that things can keep on improving is no longer the case. You know, in China, particular concerns are... Um, say, pollution or the education system, is it blocked up where you can you know, not enough people can get to the best universities or whatever, there are particular kind of concerns, but people no longer have this sense that their future, the future of their children will be better than, than their own lives. And so I think that, you know, that's where you see things like this sort of lying down um, movement in, in China or people kind of opting out of the traditional hopes and dreams. But you also, I think, one of the things that's interesting in China is that you see very, very different expressions of kind of youthful exuberance. um, And it's almost like everything is changing so fast, you know, one summer no one had tattoos and then the next the next year when warm weather came around suddenly you see that like loads of people in Beijing have tattoos and you sort of wonder you know was there a kind of message sent out saying it's okay now or you would suddenly see there would be a trend for people to wear this kind of plastic mushroom flower in their hair and suddenly everyone's got this strange thing coming out of their hair now these these are tiny things but but to me what they seemed to signify was that People in China, if we can generalise about such a thing, are still, often youth culture is still really sort of shifting very, very fast. And it can change almost, you know, in the space of a couple of months. And people are finding different ways to express themselves and don't necessarily know how. And so, you know, again, that kind of brings us back to something like literature, where in fiction you can often sort of, try out a mode of expression almost. And there are emotional truths in fiction that I think can be hard to express elsewhere.
1: So this is a lead into a new topic, um, which is the media environment or the information environment. And I'll divide this into a couple of subcategories. First of all, The people that we're now talking about, we've been talking about younger people in China, are they receiving material from outside of China that shapes how they choose to dress, what their attitudes are, and so on?
2: I mean, I can only really speak, I think, in terms of what they seem to be reading. And I think for a lot of the intellectually curious, of which there are many in China, they have access to all sorts of you know they have access to everything they want to to find. Uh, they read very widely. They're obsessed with translated fiction, and that does definitely shape how they are thinking and writing and creating their their own sort of fictional universes, I guess. But as far as trends and fashions, I get the sense that there's been a slight shift uh, in recent years, which is pegged to a degree of pride in being Chinese now, which doesn't need to default to the west especially america for its cultural influences and uh, i know the government has quite a big part to play in that in terms of programming of movies that are shown and and things but i get the sense that they are also really starting to take an interest in what uh, young people themselves are creating and and what sort of trends are being set in china itself would you agree with that rosie
0: Yeah, I mean, if you if you um, people in China have access to a lot of influences and um, media and lots of different things from outside, you know, they shop in Zara, they shop in H&M. So they're buying the same clothes. You know, there's a lot that is very much in common. There are different expressions of it. And actually, the further west you go, the sort of less influence you see of of Western culture. And that's partly a financial thing. It's that, you know, people, people aren't buying as many clothes and people aren't kind of keeping up with trends and things. The huge fakes industry that we know about in China, you see people in very far flung, very remote, very poor places wearing fake Chanel scarves. It's kind of fascinating and interesting. And, and people who really want to um, can also kind of leap the firewall, as it's known, the, the kind of Chinese censorship um, of, of some Internet sites, and read anything. Um, it's certainly possible to do that from within China one of the movements that's interesting is being really that's being really pushed by the government is a movement towards wearing traditional clothes hanfu which is the sort of um it's actually a made up uniform but it's the sort of made up the kinds of traditional chinese clothes that people have conceived of rather recently as as chinese clothes and you see people you know kids are sent to kind of classes to learn about confucianism and confucius's teachings and they'll be wearing mini versions of hanfu and people are getting dressed in traditional clothes and things. And part of that is being pushed by the government because because it's a bit scared of its own pop culture. It's got to push something. It's got to push something, a soft power and traditional culture seems like a kind of safe thing to do. But part of that is, as Megan says, also about a genuine kind of pr- pride and patriotism and excitement about being Chinese and knowing that you want to consume something of your own. So it's, it's a nuanced picture, I think.
1: We've been talking about Western-produced or outside-produced culture penetrating into China. Then, as we see in Megan's book, there's a vast amount of Chinese culture. Does any of it penetrate the West or or leave China and influence, you know, our children and people like that?
2: Uh, As far as I can tell, very little. And I think that goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, really. There's just a a sense that uh, people think that culture produced in China is going to be in some ways under the thumb of the government and therefore not really worth engaging with and I think the one area that seems to be changing is with online Chinese online fiction which are these sort of epic uh, superhero fantasies uh, with very distinctive Chinese characteristics. Solar system. But they are increasingly being published in the West. There was one recently um, which has just done very well on the New York bestseller Times list um, in its print form. I think we still haven't embraced the, the Chinese way of engaging with those books, which is to devour them on our mobile phone every day. Uh, we still like to have a, a printed copy to read them, but uh, as far as I can tell, that's the only thing that's really culturally penetrating the West at the moment. Although I, I put my money on music, maybe pop pop groups.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's so original about your book is that very little of this material that you found out about and, and directed our attention to penetrates outside of China. So it all as you're reading about it comes across as fresh.
0: One of the things that's striking talking to a lot of chinese people who speak fantastically good english is that they've learned a lot of that through just watching endless um episodes of friends or the big bang theory or whatever it is that they found fun to watch they'll just keep on watching i mean it's it's absolutely amazing when you meet some people who speak so fluently and so with um, such extraordinary American accents who turn out never to have left the country. All right,
1: thanks, you're the best. Now listen, the last day of auditions is Thursday, okay? So I got to get in there
2: by Thursday, okay? Just remember Thursday. Thursday, can you remember Thursday? <laughs> yeah, so Tuesday?
0: And I think China is struggling to produce anything like that and that's partly because, coming back to the kind of initial conversation about the government control of the culture industry makes it hard to be kind of as creatively brilliant as you want if you're also being told, but you must also come within certain confines of what the Communist Party does and doesn't think is okay. You've seen a bit more in film, but you know, to me, often that's sort of almost kind of uber stereotypes. You know, Kung Fu Panda, really. Um, it, it's not necessarily a problem with the films themselves, but that sort of it's it's the image that they are projecting of China to me goes back to that that we saw at the beginning it's not really the kind of exciting surprising shocking diverse China that that sort of I encountered when when I went there so I think it's I think in general China is still struggling to project a kind of exciting appealing image of itself culturally that is distinct from the kind of Chinese lanterns and um, Chinese New Year celebrations and that sort of thing
2: or as we've said um, the the books that have been banned which seem to be the other, definition required for Western readers to want to read them, or indeed films which uh, couldn't be shown in China. Um, We we have a, a huge appetite for that sort of culture, the stuff that's not allowed to be seen in China. But it doesn't mean there's much synergy between what Chinese people are reading and watching and what we are reading and watching.
1: I assume the answer to this is yes. But just to ask it, does China have a sort of coterie of internet stars who run their own brand and studio from their house and and have assembled vast audiences and if that's true what do we find out when we see these people's uh work and that attracts such a big following
2: and i think one of the earliest of these was actually a writer called han han who was extremely combative and controversial at the time he was I guess popular really about 10 years ago with a a blog and some novels that he wrote. I think a true writer and author is one who needs to give the government headaches. It doesn't matter what type of government. In China, it's the Chinese government. And in
1: America, it's the U.S. government. It's all the same.
2: What was really illuminating about him was he was uh, very outspoken, very dismissive of the Chinese education system. He was one of the, the first people to show that you could not pass the gaokao with flying colors and become... multi-millionaire. I think what's been really interesting about his trajectory as a writer to a celebrity is that he is now just a professional celebrity, really. He races cars, makes movies, which are pretty trashy, I think. And he has, in a way, sort of set the model now for what the age of Uber celebrity is in China, which is about being more like an influencer, really, uh, rather than a sort of cultural spokesperson or rebel.
1: Right. I. um, That sounds pretty familiar. Uh, to as a parent in the US, because um, I feel like I'm fighting these our influencers all the time. We have to wind up this session now. I'd urge everybody to tune in to our third podcast about Megan's book, which will feature just myself speaking to Megan. We'll go through with Megan her telling the story of how she got onto this subject. So please join us again. And thanks for being with us for this episode.
2: Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thanks
1: for listening to part two of our podcast series on subplot, what China is reading and why it matters. In our next episode, how Megan found the Chinese writings, what story they tell and how her book allows us to examine our own relationship with art and politics. Our producer is Tracy Madigan, associate producer Leanne Herder, audio engineer John Wepler. Thanks to the Mellon Foundation and its support for the podcast. You can find all of our podcasts and more information about our books at globalreports.columbia.edu. I'm Nick Lemon. Thanks for listening.